0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Leora Halperin from the University of Colorado Boulder, here to talk about her new book, Babel and Zion, Jews, Nationalism, and Language Diversity in Palestine, 1920 to 1948, published this year by Yale. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Jason Shulman. We've got a great show for you today. My guest is Leora Halperin from the University of Colorado Boulder, here to talk about her new book, Babel and Zion, Jews, Nationalism, and Language Diversity in Palestine, 1920-1948, to 1948, published this year by Yale University Press. Leora, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies.
1: Thanks, Jason.
0: We're glad to have you here. So let's, let's jump right in. For those of us who aren't expert in the history of early 20th century Palestine, can you give us a little background about the Yeshuv, what's happening in Palestine in the lead up to when your story begins?
1: Sure. Well, my story begins in the years just after World War I. At that time, there's a small but growing Jewish population. Increasingly, that population is made up of immigrants who join a very small population who had been in Palestine for a longer period of time. And most of those New Jewish immigrants were identified in one way or another with the Zionist movement. They were coming mainly from Eastern Europe and then increasingly from Central Europe, as well as from some other parts of the world in smaller numbers. They encountered when they got there a place under the control of the British, who had received what's called a mandate from the League of Nations Um, just after World War I, which enabled the British to rule while giving the local populations a certain degree of autonomy over some of their own affairs. So it's in this context that a group of Jews speaking a variety of different languages come to a place that is increasingly diverse and increasingly Jewish, although Jews are still a decisive minority during this period. And they encounter each other, and they encounter the British, and they encounter the local Palestinian Arab population. And this leads to a number of very uh, interesting and frequent and in-depth conversations about the society that they had joined, the society that they were trying
0: to build. Now, a lot's been written about sort of that time period, but your book looks interestingly at language. How did you think of that as your area of emphasis?
1: Sure. Well, many of the m- many of your listeners will be familiar with the fact that one of the major cultural projects of the Zionist movement aside from their political project was the revival or promotion of modern Hebrew as a vernacular. And Many folks also know that that project was was quite successful, that if you go to modern Israel today, you'll find that Hebrew is the majority language of the country. Um, But what they may not know is how much anxiety there was wrapped up in this project, how many questions there were about whether Hebrew could, in fact, be dominant and, and more importantly for my book questions about what the place of languages other than Hebrew should be in this growing uh, Jewish society within Palestine known as the Yishuv. This was a time in lots of countries around the world where national movements based on ethnicity and language, ethnic nationalist movements, were thinking about language and considering it the heart and soul of their national project. We see trends like this in all kinds of parts of the world. So language wasn't just an incidental thing, it was the very heart and soul of the project. And this was true of the Zionist project as well. And so by looking at language, looking at lots of discussions about language in lots of different kinds of archival sources and institutional records, I found that conversations about language were almost never just about language in any concrete or practical form. Very often they were conversations much more existential about what kind of society these Jews consider themselves part of, what kind of society they were trying to build, and particularly importantly, what kind of relationship they felt they had or felt they should have with three really important groups of people. So first of all, the Jewish diaspora with all of its linguistic diversity. Second, the British who, as I mentioned, were um, ha- held the mandate for Palestine and speaking English, of course. And then third, the Palestinian Arab population, clearly the majority, and the larger Arabic speaking region around Palestine. So these these were questions about Internal and external relationships that would be quite complex and quite pressing and in many cases very difficult to to resolve
0: So what's the traditional story about how Hebrew sort of won out over the other languages and how are you challenging or modifying that story?
1: Well, I don't challenge the fact that Hebrew did, did win out. Um, in the period before World War I, there were some real questions about whether Hebrew would indeed be the dominant language of the Yishuv in Palestine. Yiddish was very clearly a contender because the vast majority of Zionist-affiliated Jews were, in fact, Yiddish speakers. But what the traditional story tends to, to say or tends to emphasize is that after a period of very intense struggle led by very ideologically passionate individuals, the most famous of whom is Eliezer Ben Yehuda, thanks to the commitment of teachers who founded and taught in Hebrew language schools. By the time we get to around World War I or just after, Hebrew has emerged as the dominant force. And at that point, all that was left was to defend it, to fight against linguistic competitors. Now, what I found looking at the many archival sources that I looked at, is that although there was that sort of militant side of the story, in fact, most individuals that I encountered felt a great deal of ambivalence about these other languages. They recognized that languages like Yiddish or Polish, uh, common Jewish immigrant languages, English and Arabic would necessarily continue to have some place in the lives of individuals and certainly in the life of the community. And they had to think about and they had to negotiate exactly what that relationship would be. In fact, and this is one of the central things I argued in the book, that learning to successfully negotiate a relationship with these languages was actually essential for the growth of the movement, right? These languages didn't so much challenge or destroy that which was being built, but in fact, became part and parcel of what it meant to negotiate the place of this new community in the space of Palestine at that time.
0: You mentioned your source base. Can you tell us a little bit more about what sources you looked at for this book?
1: Sure. Yeah, this is one of the most fun parts of the project was going to many, many different archives, uh, mostly in Israel, but some in England, when I explored the British side of this story. Um, local archives, municipal archives, movement archives of different uh, kibbutz organizations and labor and the Jabotinsky archive of the revisionist Zionists, um, always looking for materials about language. And often it meant looking for materials about Hebrew language, uh, because that was what was recorded in the archive. But I found that reading these folders and folders labeled language, I came across all sorts of discussions about languages other than Hebrew. So some of the places I found these things that ended up going into the book were conversations about education. So, for example, uh, in Hebrew language schools, there very often were classes in English and Arabic, sometimes also in French, though I didn't look at that so much. I started looking at the conversations among teachers and educational administrators, trying to figure out, well, what should the curriculum look like for those languages? I also looked at uh, quite a bit at archives of the Tel Aviv municipality, which contained some really interesting letters and correspondence, including some letters of complaint. So ordinary uh, Jewish individuals would write into the municipality, complaining about a sign that they saw in a language other than Hebrew or a a store that was advertising products with labels in languages other than Hebrew. And so through these complaint letters, I was able to construct a picture of what the marketplace looked like, what the commercial sphere looked like, and how much language questions were wrapped up in what was going on in that space. I also had a great set of Uh, interview transcripts from interviews that were done by an oral history project at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, interviewing individuals who had grown up in the Tel Aviv area. Those interviews included lots of questions about the daily lives of those individuals, but I found that very often the interviewers would ask questions about language. What language did you speak at home? What languages did you learn? What kind of encounters did you have with people speaking other languages? So that became a Really important source for um, understanding kind of the day to day language experiences, then I used a lot of newspapers, some memoirs, uh, some published sources on kind of any number of issues around this topic. So I kind of had to piece them together, I laid them out on a you know on my computer and sometimes papers on my table, and kind of pieced them together around different themes and that's how the book ended up being structured
0: so So take us through the structure of the book. Um, because you mentioned structure, so the first chapter deals with language in the space of leisure, so you look at the home, the coffee house, and the the cinema. Tell us a little bit about that,
1: yeah, so I structured the book, the book has five main chapters, and I structured the book around spaces or settings in this Yishuv society in which either language diversity was particularly prominent or around which language issues were particularly often discussed. And I started with a space that I think would be most readily associated with language diversity, and that's the space of leisure. That is, what were people doing when they weren't engaged in work or official Zionist movement activities, when they were just trying to relax? And I I looked at, as you said, three spaces that were particularly full of different languages. Um, the home was a very interesting space because given the the gender divisions at the time, and in many cases still, the home was very often a space associated with women and often women raising children. And children, once they grow up, often remembered mothers who did not so easily learn Hebrew, who continued to speak in their various Immigrant languages. There was often conflict over this between the younger generation and the parent generation. Also, there were articles written in newspapers expressing concern and fear that these these women who should be um, imparting Hebrew to their children were not doing so, and that this home sphere was particularly uh, dangerous or concerning. Um, the coffee house was a space outside of the home, but also outside of the the workspace, a kind of a, a, a third a third place in society where individuals would come and meet their friends, in which there were often encounters between the different groups in Palestine, so sometimes between Jews and Arabs, sometimes between Jews and, and British individuals. Much of this was recorded in uh, sometimes in memoirs, also sometimes in letters of, of concern that were written about these things. And the cinema, it's really interesting because the cinema was a place of imported film. There was a small Hebrew language film industry, but the vast majority of films and the ones that people found most, most uh, high quality tended to be from other places. Um, so I looked at that, that sphere of cinema, some of, the, some of the distribution that occurred, and also some of the rhetoric around cinema that I found in, in many of the archives. Um, should I keep then- taking you through some of the other chapters?
0: Sure. So chapter uh, one had sort of a gender dimension. Am I right that chapter two um, maybe looks at more at um, male peddlers, businessmen? What's going on in chapter two?
1: Yeah. So chapter two is about the sphere of commerce. Um, commerce is a place or I should say commerce is or creates a sphere of many kinds of encounters between buyers and sellers, but also between importers and the the countries and places that they're importing from. And So some of this story, as you said, is is very much a story of men. Peddlers uh, tended to be men. They tended to be poor. They tended to be Yiddish-speaking. The whole realm of peddling, just like in the East European um, space, was associated with poor Yiddish-speaking men, which raised Interesting questions about whether indeed the society had transformed from what it what it looked like in its Eastern European past, which raised a lot of concerns about about the continuation of exile even in the Holy Land. But it's also a story of women. In some ways, women were often buying um, goods from Jewish women. I should say were often buying goods from local. Palestinian Arab women who would come around selling eggs or selling vegetables. I look on the one hand at what I call high commerce, the realm of import-export, the kinds of advertising that occurred that people would have, um, Jews would have been exposed to. But I also look at the realm of low commerce, which tended to be associated not with the European languages of, of high commerce, but rather with Yiddish, as I mentioned, and also with Arabic. Uh, so these two languages, Yiddish and Arabic, became the twin markers of this form of commerce that many in the Yishuv were hoping would be modified or even potentially eliminated as a new ideal of proud Hebrew commerce uh, was promoted.
0: And so, skipping ahead to chapter four, where you talk specifically about Arabic, uh, can you tell us a little bit about about that chapter?
1: Yeah. So. Arabic, unlike the space of leisure or the space of commerce, was not a single space, but rather a series of different kinds of interactions uh, between Jews and Arabs uh, in Palestine. Uh, I talk in part about some of the happenstance encounters in the Jaffa and Tel Aviv area, including between children, which often involved some language exchange. But I also looked at ways in which uh, some Jews thought of Arabic as a language that could be important even for those who didn't anticipate meaningful relationships with Palestinian Arabs. This is a time in which the society of the Yishuv is separating itself out, carving out for itself a kind of reality that it imagined might not uh, involve Palestinian Arabs. So for some of these individuals, Arabic could be a path, toward effective propaganda. Um, The labor Zionist movement was particularly active in thinking about how to use Arabic to try to persuade their Arabic-speaking neighbors that Zionism was a good thing and intended well, intended good things for the inhabitants of the country. I look at some propaganda newspapers put out by uh, labor Zionist organizations, and I look at the content of some of those Arabic newspapers, But Arabic could also be a language of kind of a proto-intelligence gathering, which um, in retrospect became the kernel of many of the Israeli army-affiliated intelligence services. Those who maybe did not intend that relations would be good, in fact, anticipated conflict, but thought that Arabic was a necessary tool for, let's say, winning, winning that conflict. I also looked at Arabic in the schools. Uh, So, like I said, Hebrew language schools often taught Arabic, although often not very well. And I looked at some debates between educators about, well, what kind of Arabic should we be teaching? Should we be teaching classical Arabic? That is the Quranic Arabic or the Arabic of the uh, modern media in order to make our Jewish students aware of the proud classical Arabic past or maybe to allow them to read Arabic newspapers. Maybe they should study Classical Arabic because it has grammatical similarities with Hebrew and it could lend some insight into Hebrew. But on the other side, there were some Jewish educators who said, no, the purpose of Arabic study is to learn the colloquial form of Arabic, which um, is, in fact, quite different from the more formal Arabic. Maybe we should teach colloquial Arabic in order to encourage relations. Maybe we should take trips to Arab villages in order to have one-on-one or group encounters. And so... What I show in that chapter is that the rationales for using and teaching Arabic were quite diverse, often directly in conflict with each other, which helps explain in part why it was quite disorganized and ultimately ineffective uh, project, and yet one that gives quite a lot of insight into some of the thought processes of the, of the Jewish community.
0: Leora, the bulk of your story ends in 1948, although there's an epilogue that talks a little bit about uh, the contemporary situation, what, what changes in 1948 in terms of uh, language in what we call Israel?
1: So in many ways, nothing changed, because questions about Hebrew strength and the relevance of other languages, if anything, increased with new waves of immigration, many of them Holocaust survivors, but also a new and enormous wave of immigration of Jews, from the Arab world, from places like Iraq and Morocco and Syria and other places. There were still concerns that Palestine was becoming a a Babel, a, a Tower of Babel. And yet what changed at that time is that statehood now created a different kind of apparatus for determining and enforcing language policy. So if one or if I were to look at that later period, you'd be looking not at proto-state institutions and a group of people who are a minority in the place they live, but now, as a result of the events of forty eight, a uh, a sovereign country w- in which Jews were now the majority of the population. So all sorts of issues, particularly the relationship to Arabic, but also other issues, changed as those um, as those circumstances changed.
0: Great. It's time now for what I call the lightning round. Um, You know, sort of quick, quick questions, and we'll get your thoughts on a number of topics. So the first one is, how did you get interested in the topic?
1: Well, I've always been something of a language nut. I was a language nut before I was interested in history. I had studied several of the languages relevant to this book, and... um, the most recent of which at the time I started this project had been Arabic, but I had also studied some German and some some Yiddish. And so I knew even as I got interested in history that I wanted to find a a linguistic or a language angle on history. And when I realized that these conversations were so active in this period, I realized I had hit on something that would be a, a great topic.
0: And so what do you hope that the impact of the book is?
1: Well, One of the the big takeaways from this book is to understand the ways in which nationalism, um, here in this case, but also more generally, though it presents itself necessarily as very strong and organized and forceful, in fact, is quite a lot more complicated and fractured when you look at it close up. That people have national motivations, but often individual motivations, economic motivations um, that motivate what they do. How they relate to those around them. Um, Zionism as well and this is a point I make about Zionism specifically although so much of its um, very reason for being according to its uh, own language is to differentiate itself from the Jewish diaspora in many ways was continuing patterns of the Jewish diaspora thinking about its relationship to more powerful European entities. Um, Pondering a relationship with neighbors who were not deeply accepting of them for, for, all, sorts of, um, for all sorts of good reasons. Uh, thinking about diversity within their own community. So in those ways, and this is another significance of the title, Babel means not only the Tower of Babel, but also Bavel, Babylon, the Jewish diaspora. In many ways, diaspora persisted even in the space of Zion.
0: How has researching and writing the book changed the way you see the world? So you looked at a a specific instance of the relationship between identity, language and nationalism. Has that changed how you look at other instances?
1: Do you mean instances in other parts of the world? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not an expert in, in other parts of the world, although I did do a lot of reading in other places with language politics, which turns out to be a lot of parts of the world. I think for all the ways in which the, the Zionist story does have some unique features, in many ways what I found parallels dynamics in other countries, um, especially countries with small national languages that are not spoken by a lot of people. Thinking about, and I guess I didn't talk about this much here, the relationship to more powerful European languages, in this case English, trying to think about, well, How how do we get the linguistic skills to interact with the broader world? And that's not always easy. How do we do that while promoting our national language as well? So if anything, I was struck by some interesting comparative possibilities and potential around this around this area.
0: Right. And you say that you would like to bring the study of language into the discipline of history. Uh, Can you say a little bit more about that? And then how do you think uh, your work will affect Jewish studies as an area of study?
1: Sure. Um well, I found that as I was as I was as I was doing some background research, secondary research on this topic, I found that a lot of work on language issues was being done outside the discipline of history. It was being done either in the realm of literature where language is really profoundly important, especially multilingualism, and also in the realm of sociolinguistics, those looking very close up at language dynamics within a society. Um, And I found that only in in certain cases had historians looked at these dynamics. And when they did so, in the case of of Palestine and Zionism, they they really only devoted a a small piece of of their work to it. I found that looking at language is a really excellent way to ask historical questions about a group and its self-image and its relationship to other groups. It becomes a window into politics. It becomes a window into
0: cultural history.
1: Can you repeat the second question?
0: Uh, Where do you think Jewish studies as an area of study is right now, and how do you see this work um, contributing to it or moving it forward?
1: Sure. Well, I think there's been some great work trying to think about uh, the history of Zionism in a a broader comparative context. So in that sense, my work is part of a, a growing interest in kind of poking at some of the national narratives of the movement and trying to think a little bit more critically about what was what was actually going on on the ground. Um, the realm of cultural history is still quite active in the space of Jewish studies and I think those trying to understand the workings of Jewish culture, especially transnational Jewish culture, Jews thinking about their relationships to other Jews and also to different groups of non-Jews, will find a lot to think about uh, reading my book and looking at this particular case, even those who don't necessarily work on Palestine.
0: So, Leora, if I'm at a cocktail party, uh, what tidbit from the book can I use to impress someone? To
1: impress them? Well, the, the tidbits I tend to tell at cocktail parties are, they tend to be anecdotes which take the form of, of jokes. Um, Many anecdotes tell us something very profound about the language dynamics in the through through humor. And one that I very often tell is a story, which may be apocryphal, but it doesn't matter, about the noted Hebrew poet and writer Chaim Nachman Bialik. So the story or the joke goes like this. A group of friends encountered Bialik in a fallen state. Speaking Yiddish on the Sabbath, and they said, Bialik, what is this? You, a Hebrew writer speaking Yiddish, how can it be? And he said, Yiddish speaks itself, but Hebrew is labor, and labor is forbidden on the Sabbath. (laughs) So I I use this anecdote in my work to think about the Sabbath and leisure and connections between language and leisure, about those who... um, you know, we think of as as real promoters of Hebrew who had all sorts of internal dynamics and thoughts about the lingering place of other languages. Uh, So usually when I give talks, I maybe I start with that anecdote or I I give it as a a great example of the kinds of sources that I had the pleasure of working with in this project.
0: My tidbit is also from Bialik. Um, It is that the Hebrew word for cinema, which he supposedly coined is kol noa, which means moving voice. That's right. Actually, it has nothing to do with images. That's interesting. Well, you
1: know, it's interesting that um, the word that was initially used, because, um, you know, film before it had sound just had images, they used the word oza noa which means moving vision, I guess. Um, and only in the 20s, when sound cinema started, coming in, did they modify? They said, well, we want to emphasize the sound part as the really, you know, distinguishing feature of this new kind of cinema. So they brought in the word for voice.
0: Interesting. Well, Leora, we've taken a lot of your time. Um so any parting thoughts you'd like to share? And what are you working on next?
1: Sure. Well, you know, I hope that um people have the opportunity to to take a look at the book. And I'd love to hear back from folks about what they what they found particularly interesting. Um, One of the great things about working on so many different kinds of language questions is that I uh, find myself in conversation with people interested in British colonialism issues, Middle Eastern studies, uh, Jewish studies in various parts of the world. So I I look forward to all of those different connections. As far as what I'm working on next, I'm working on uh, a project now uh, related to the somewhat earlier period, the period of... A uh, very early Jewish settlement, I'm sorry, Zionist Jewish settlement in Palestine was often called the period of the first Aliyah. So from around 1882 and to the very early 1900s, I'm looking at some narratives of violence during that period, both violence committed by Jews and violence experienced by Jews, looking at how those instances were thought about and uh, recorded and narrativized at the time, and also the way that that period has been um, revisited, and in some cases, reappropriated during later periods in the evolution of um, the Jewish community of Palestine and the Zionist movement in the state of Israel.
0: Leora, that sounds like a great project. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to thank you for being on the show today. The author is Leora Halperin. The book title is and Zion, Jews, Nationalism, and Language Diversity in Palestine. 1920 to 1948, out this year from Yale University Press. Thank you for joining us. Check us out at com. You can download the podcast on iTunes, check out our Facebook page, and follow us on Twitter, at NewBooksJudaism. Got an idea for a book we should cover? Send us an email, newbooksinjewishstudies at com. We'll see you next time.